Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we take a look at Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. They collapse and fall but we rise and stand upright. O Yahweh, save the King. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Another text written by David to the master of the choir uh, for the singing of the people of God. It begins with what is at the heart of this prayer, right? May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. It is a prayer for the Lord's deliverance, for the Lord's protection from evil and from enemies. And it indeed is an encouragement that we would pray, right? May Yahweh answer you. He's going to answer you if you've prayed, right? He's responding. David is asking the people to pray and that the Lord would respond. If we're honest, really every day is a day of trouble. Um, this would be 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13, that basically evil goes from bad to worse. A question to consider as a family together, has God ever answered your prayers? And give examples to each other of how the Lord has worked in your life to care for you, to care for your family. Now that the name of God would protect his people. The God of Jacob, here specifically mentioned, so Jacob is Israel, the one that God has made into a nation, the promise that he gave actually to his grandfather first, to Abram, to Abraham. He is sometimes referred to in any of those generations, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In fact, in Exodus 3, when he gives his name to Moses, he lists out that, that entire group. So what does it mean that the name would protect you? I think if we uh, wanted to stick plainly to the Old Testament and to language back here, we might go with fear of the enemy, right? That God's name, that God's mighty acts in the past would be known by the nations around and it would drive them to fear and they would not attack Jerusalem. They would not come upon God's holy people because they would be afraid that Yahweh would be fighting for them. This happened. This was a reality at times in history. Pharaoh in Egypt, 
learned this. His people learned it. It's why they gave the Israelites a bunch of stuff and, and threw them out. The people wanted them gone because they feared Yahweh. But there's another way to see this as well. Baptism. In the waters of holy baptism, the Lord places his name on you. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Trinitarian name given to you, placed upon you. When that happens, in that moment, you are welcomed into the family of God, into the household of the King of heaven and earth. You are his. Now perhaps you can see the protection of the name of the Lord, right? You are part of his family and he will fight for his own. He will care for you against sin, death, and the devil, as we know Christ has done. Verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support from Zion. The sanctuary is where he is. It is the holy place where he chose to dwell in the midst of his people. This referent here would be to the tabernacle at this point, because, again, the temple not built under King David. It's built under his son Solomon. So the sanctuary, the holy place where God dwells, where his throne is, that's the tabernacle. It's the ark of the covenant that is his throne. That word sanctuary refers to where where the holy things are. Sanctus, uh, being the, the Latin word for holy, as we consider the architecture of our churches today, the way our churches are laid out, many Christians would call the gathering space for worship the sanctuary, the place where they sit in a pew as they hear God's word, as they prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. That's not actually the proper term for that place, although it's the common term. The proper term for that place would be the nave, which is connected to the Latin word for a ship, because the church is the ark uh, that ferries us across this wretched world until we are saved by Christ. Through baptism, through word, through sacrament, the Lord's Supper, those things. Instead, the sanctuary is the elevated platform where the altar sits in your church. You might even have multiple elevations. If you have a, a step or two that go up to a raised area where your pastor will do some of the liturgy from, where maybe you have a pulpit or a lectern there, um, that you've crossed past the, the communion rail, that area is called the chancel. And then if you have an additional raised step that the altar sits on, that area is the sanctuary. I suppose it's possible that some churches, the sanctuary and the chancel would be the same because there's not an additional elevation. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. So may God send you help from the sanctuary. May God act from where he is on your behalf. May he be present for you. So may God send you help from the sanctuary today then would be, as we talked about that picture of your church, be Christ's body and blood that are on that altar 
that then are taken from that altar and handed to you. Right? Forgiveness of sins granted to you by Christ's body and by Christ's blood, by his word. Zion, in verse 2, is another word for Jerusalem here, which again is where David reigns and it is where the house of God would be for most of Israel's history. May he remember all your offerings and regard them with favor. Basically here, it's a conversation about trust so that the, the people of God would be trusting in the Lord. They would be making the offerings that the Lord has given them to make. And so the Lord sees this. The Lord knows the people are faithful and he continues to fight on their behalf. I think that's the angle for the king here as he writes. Now, he uses the word salah at the end of verse 3, and that's the, one of those unknown psalm words that we, we really just don't know. Is this some kind of a musical notation? Um, did it have an actual meaning to it other than that? Seventy-one times in the psalms and three times in Habakkuk, but we don't, we don't know. Verse 4 is tricky. May he grant you your heart's desire. Have a conversation about this one with your children. What are your heart's desires? What do you want? What do you want right now? What do you want from life? And the sinful nature will tend to drive those conversations. We want toys or gadgets. We want food or, or riches. As we think about what we want want out of life, we want success or happiness. And none of those things are to be the desire of our hearts. This is the the danger here. I want you to compare a a few Bible verses together. So consider Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, as well as James chapter 4 verse 3. Genesis 6 verse 5 is where God announces that the intentions of the thoughts of the hearts of men are nothing but evil continuously. And so he judged the world by sending the flood, and he saved Noah from that flood. And compare this then with, especially because we have a a psalm talking about God answering prayer, compare this with uh, James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. Notice that? Our hearts are evil, and so when we rely on our hearts, we're pointed toward evil. But what I want you to compare these things with is actually Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where we learn that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As Christians, we are not to be of this world. In fact, if we read on in James 4 there, um, the very next verse, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We are called not to be a part of this world. We are called not to love the things that our neighbor loves. We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to love God. And so we are, as Christians, with the Spirit living in us, the, with Christ 
dwelling in us, we are to focus ourselves on him and on his salvation and on his salvation not just for us but for all. And we are to train our hearts, train them to follow Christ. Matthew chapter 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is a tough one because it cuts to the heart of the sinful nature. <laughs> Literally, that pun was not intended, but it works. May we shout for joy over your salvation. This we do. And this we do better, I think, than verse 4 as a church as a person, as a child of God, we do rejoice at his salvation. We're thankful for it, even though, you know, we constantly are slipping up. We sin often. But we are thankful for salvation. We're thankful for forgiveness. We go to church. We sing praises to the Lord. We share this good news with our family. In the name of our God, set up our banners. Banners. This isn't the same word that it tends to get used, uh, tends to be translated as something like banner or flag in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Uh, this is a verb that means to either look at something or to set up, to lift up a banner, the idea of it being looked at. So, but what is a banner? This is a, a battle symbol, Right? I mean, that's the idea of a flag, too, even though we don't really think of it that much anymore. You, you carried your flag into battle with you. It represented who you are, whose you are, and who you fight for. And it was almost equivalent to defeat for your flag to fall. God is our banner. More specifically, the cross of Christ is our flag. We lift up the name of our God. We lift up our banners so that the world knows whose we are. We do not belong to this world. We do not belong to some nation here. We are a holy nation. Our citizenship is not of this world. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. That would be your prayers. That's the James passage again. I mean, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. But that's when our hearts are actually set on him. So again, may our petitions actually be pointed and fixed upon Christ and not just our every whim of desire that we have in this life. Pray that the Lord would reform your heart to trust in him above all things. Verse 6, I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. That's a reference to him, himself, right? David is the anointed one of God. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Here David is praying for God's deliverance, that he would protect him, defend him from his enemies, rescue him. We can take this further. I mean, the saving might of his right hand 
The right hand is the, the hand that would draw the sword to fight. So you can see the picture of salvation here that David has in mind. But we have a greater picture in mind, don't we? Because we know how the Lord has saved us from the enemies that oppress us. The ones that truly oppress us. The ones who seek to destroy body and soul, although they actually aren't capable of doing so. The devil doesn't care if you have wealth or poverty here. The devil cares if you get to be with Christ. And he doesn't want that. He seeks to oppose that. That's the true oppression. As is our sinful nature that would seek to drag us into rebellion against the Lord, to reject the Lord in all ways. And this is who Jesus saved us from. This is what Jesus saved us from. He is the one who has seated, seated himself at the right hand of the Father in his ascension. He is the right hand that saves. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. That's 7a. Go to 8a. They collapse and fall. If you trust in the things of this world, it will fail you. But we trust, 7b, in the name of Yahweh our God. We rise and stand upright. It doesn't always look good. For the Christian in this place, it doesn't always look like the best life now. In fact, it usually doesn't. I don't want my best life to be now. I want my best life to be with Christ in paradise forevermore. This is end times for us, right? Verses 7 and 8. We know this is true of the day of judgment. When Christ returns, this will be the result. You can be the king of the earth. Like you could conquer it all, as Alexander the Great and others have tried. You collapse and fall. Apart from Christ, you have nothing. But with Christ, even if you were just a, a humble and meek servant, I'll even use the word slave, in this world, you rise. How incredible that is. Blessed are the meek for theirs is the kingdom. They shall inherit the earth. O Yahweh, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is David wrapping up this hymn with a prayer for himself, which by extension is a prayer for God's people. If things go well for your king, they're probably going to go at least all right for you, assuming your king, uh, well, that he actually cares for people like he's supposed to do. So David prays here that God would save him. If he saves him, he is saving Jerusalem from her enemies, and thus God's people are included in this prayer. Praise me.